All right, if you're not already there, let's turn with me to the book of John. And we're picking back up really in our verse-by-verse study uh, in chapter 5. We finished chapter 4 last week. And if you remember chapter 4, it's kind of interesting because Jesus had just gotten to Galilee. He was coming up north. He kind of got distracted uh, in a good way, divine distraction in Samaria for a few days because there was a harvest to be had there. There was a woman that he needed to meet with. He needed to go through Samaria. If you remember chapter 4, verse 4 tells us. And so he's, he's up in Galilee. I'm going to bring this map up just so you can kind of see this again. So he just got up into Galilee, and this is where he healed the nobleman's son, right up here in Cana of Galilee, same place he did the water to wine. That was the first miracle. The second miracle was uh, at least the second hand-selected miracle, right? There were many other miracles going on in Galilee um, at that time. But now when we get to chapter five, it's interesting because he bounces back down to Jerusalem. So we don't really have a, a, a chronological flavor in John four in terms of how long he spent there, but it was many months. And you can, again, look at that ministry in Matthew four and I think, and Mark one and Luke four, where he had this very successful ministry in Galilee. He was invited to the synagogues. He was healing many people, etc. So that has all just been going on. But now he's coming back down to Jerusalem. His popularity is growing in Galilee, but now he's bouncing back down to Jerusalem. We're going to see in the text this morning, the reason he comes back down is because there's a feast. And so he comes back down to Jerusalem for the feast. And he's about to do his third sign. Remember John hand-selected seven signs for the very purpose of what? Convincing his readers to trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. That's why he picked them. This is the third one he picked. We're about to read it in chapter five this morning. Uh, chapter five this morning. But what's different about this sign from the previous two? There's a couple things different. Number one, this sign is going to have a wider audience participation because it's going to be a very public sign. The previous two signs were kind of in the shadows, uh, in the sense where family members knew, close friends knew, and his disciples knew, but maybe not many people outside of that circle. This is going to be out in the public with a wider audience. And so this is unique in in where John is going. And then here's the big one. And we won't even get into this this morning. We kind of get into it. You, you know, if we had music, musical effects, you know, at the end of chapter five, verse nine, and it says, and that day was the Sabbath, it would be like, dun, 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 you know, like that's because that's going to set the tone for the rest of the chapter because that's a, that's going to become a big bone of contention between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it's going to be a big bone of contention all throughout the rest of his ministry is this idea that he would actually heal somebody on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders thought that's wrong. That's sinful. That's blasphemous. And Jesus is basically saying, no, it's not. Okay. And that's kind of becomes this, this constant conflict. The other thing we're going to see, we'll get more to this next week, but this, this sign that Jesus is going to do in chapter five, if you kind of just flip in your Bible, if you've got a red letter uh, edition, um, you're going to see that, that Jesus is about to go on a monologue in chapter five. And so we're going to see in chapter five and chapter six, he's going to do a sign. And then out of that sign, following that sign, he's going to give a very long discourse or teaching. Um, chapter six, it's, it's a dialogue of some sorts, but it's this long discourse of teaching. And so we'll kind of see that as we get into that next week. But this morning, we want to just consider his third hand-selected sign. This is a healing of a disabled man found in John chapter five, verses one through nine. Robert, thank you for reading that earlier. And we're going to just kind of go through now verse by verse. The first kind of four verses of the chapter really set the stage for the healing. So we want to kind of develop that because, uh, you know, there's some things culturally that we wouldn't normally pick up on, you know, 2000 years later, and it's not anybody's fault. It's just, I mean, we, we don't live in Jerusalem. We don't, 
You know what I mean? So we want to kind of bring those things out to give some added significance to what's going on. And so in verse 1, we read, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Again, just working through the Bible after this, after what? I, I believe it's his time in Galilee. I mentioned that, that that ministry is further explained in the other Gospels. He had a very successful ministry, performed lots of signs and wonders and healings there. We only had one of those recorded. That was the healing of the nobleman's son. But he had a very successful ministry there uh, in John chapter 4. And what we learn here is that there was a feast of the Jews. Now, John doesn't identify which of those feasts it was. If he did, it would help us time this a little bit. But we really don't know what the feast is. He never really identifies it. But one of the things we learned from the Old Testament is that a Jewish man was required to make his presence in Jerusalem for at least three feasts. This is Deuteronomy 16, 16. It says three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the feast of unleavened bread. We also know that feast is Passover. Um, at the feast of weeks, we also know that as uh, Pentecost. And then you've got the Feast of Tabernacles, which we also notice as the Feast of Booths, which is going to come out. Actually, that's where he's going to be in chapter 7. He's coming back for the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. In other words, they, they need to be bringing the proper sacrificial offerings. Okay, so this, we know that Jesus followed the Mosaic law perfectly, never sinned. And so he's showing up in Jerusalem for one of these feasts. Uh, again, it doesn't help us with time frame because if you remember in John chapter two, he went down for Passover. So now as we get into John five, is this, has a year passed and he's now going back for the, the next Passover or have only 50 days passed and is he coming back for the day, the feast of Pentecost? We don't know. Okay, the timing is not provided for us. We just, we don't know. So we could speculate all we want, but we really don't know what he's coming back for. So now that we know why Jesus has come to Jerusalem, John is now going to, okay, so he's gone to the city. Now we're going to kind of even narrow. There's a certain place in the city that he goes. And we pick that up in verse two. Let's read verse two. It says, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. And so he mentions this sheep gate by this pool. And, and so the sheep gate, when you, when you kind of look at his, uh, Israel's history and our, um, and let me see how this shows up. It shows up okay for you, but this is the sheep gate right here. These are the walls surrounding Jerusalem. Here's the temple complex. There's the pool that we're going to get to as well. So you can kind of see he's just giving a geographical specific area just outside of the city gates of Jerusalem. And when we look at the sheep gate historically, we see that in Nehemiah 3.1, when Nehemiah and his men rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, they actually, according to Nehemiah 3.1, hung this very gate, the sheep gate, some, you know, 450 years earlier, the sheep gate was hung. And so it's still there during the time of Jesus. It was a great geographical landmark for John to explain to his readers where this event that we're about to read of happened. Now, it's called the Sheep Gate because, hold your breath, it's where sheep entered. <laughs> it kind of makes sense why it would be called that. So sheep would enter. They would come into the temple compound from the sheep markets. Notice I put some, so don't, don't hold me to this, but there are some historians who believe that when the sheep came through that gate, they had first passed through the pool of Bethesda to get cleaned, to get prepared for sacrifice. 
Not all historians agree with that. It's a possibility, and it's right up there in the same area. But the point is, is not the sheep gate. Honestly, if you go back and read the verse, he only gives the sheep gate as an identifier for what? The pools. That's why it's kind of up there by the sheep gate. Oh, okay, that pool. Because there was, you know, multiple pools around Jerusalem. In fact, that graphic I just pulled up showed another one. But so he's just kind of giving an identifier, a geographical identifier of where this was. Now, one of the things that we're going to learn about in verse two and in, in really in this passage is it's a special pool. We'll kind of get to that here in a second. But just describing the pool, uh, the word Bethesda is actually a compound word um, taken from Hebrew. It's two words, bayith, meaning house, and kesed, meaning loving kindness or mercy. And so the word Bethesda put together meant a house of mercy or a house of flowing water. Okay, and this was kind of the description of this pool. And it was actually a combination of two pools. If you look uh, historically, there was an upper pool that was built um, in the 8th century. There was a lower pool built in 200 BC. They were built right next to each other. This is a rendering of what it looked like. These, these, you know, different than pools that we would have in our day. In fact, I could see teenage boys jumping up on the roof and jumping into the pool from there, but um, that didn't actually happen. That upper pool that you see kind of on the right side of the screen began in the 8th century. And what they did is they, they dammed, they built a dam across the, this valley, the Beth Zeta Valley, and they turned that upper pool into a reservoir for rainwater. And then they built the lower pool, added around 200 BC for a little bit more, uh, I guess, holding of that water. So both of these pools remained full at those times. The other thing that we learn uh, from this text is that the, there were five porches along these pools. Now, why is John giving all this detail? Well, we're going to get there. He's going to explain why he's mentioning all this, because what we're going to see is that there's a lot of handicapped and infirm people who are late, who lie on these porches. So he's kind of explaining the layout for his readers um, at this time. And by the way, archaeology has backed this up in terms of archaeological finds. That's where your porches were. It's just along the two sides of the two pools, and then kind of in that center section that separated those two pools. They had those, those porticos, and then they had these porches where they would lay um, when they weren't in the pool. What's really interesting about these two pools, and this is what we're going to see in the next verse, is it became a kind of gathering place. It's a place where a large group of people would gather, and we specifically get uh, the identifiers of that place, and they were certain types of people uh, in verses 3 through 4. And they were a lot of, as the text tells us, infirmed people. Great multitude, uh, verse 3, it says, In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, meaning they can't walk, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water has made, uh, was made well of whatever disease he had. That first phrase there, in these, in those porches, that's what he's tying it back to in verse 2. So they're laying there, and, and what we see in this verse is, is this phrase, great multitude. It's actually two words in the Greek. I, I put the meaning of both of them. Great means many or much of number, quantity and amount, and multitude means fullness or a great many of a certain objects. This is John's way of saying there was a boatload of people there. This got crowded. There were so many infirmed people, and you can see that this messaging in verse 4 had kind of passed through. This had been orally shared by so many people that many infirmed people just showed up there, and we see from the text that they would just lay around all day waiting 
for this water to move. That's what they were waiting for. And the legend had it that the first person in got healed. And so you've got this incredible multitude just laying around. You know, you might call it, it was like handicap junction, right? It was handicap central. I mean, this is like where everyone who had a problem that couldn't get solved by the the medical um, experts of the day went here. And I just sit there and and I stop for a second. And many of us know somebody that lives this way, that lives in a handicapped state or an infirm state and how we would just long if, if there was anything we could do to get them out of the state, we would do it in a heartbeat, you know? And so you can imagine the, the thought process of these people. They weren't foolish. They were just desperate. You know, there was nothing else that worked for them. In fact, notice they weren't begging for money here. They weren't begging for money. They weren't asking for money. What were they doing? They were simply here for one reason. They were waiting to be healed. They were waiting for an opportunity to be healed. And so John is just setting the stage here for what Jesus is about to walk into. In fact, the word lay there is interesting in the Greek. It's the imperfect tense. It means they continually laid there. They lied around all day, just waiting, hoping that this water would move. And then in some way they would get into the water first. That's what they were looking forward to. And so whether or not this was the same group every day, we don't know. Some of these people may have rotated back and forth because there were beggars outside of the temple. So they, it was close by. So one day they might've had a family member take them to the temple where they sat and begged for money. And then the next day, they, maybe they got enough money. They said, I'm gonna go lay by the pool because maybe today I'll be healed. So they may have rotated back and forth. We don't really know. But the p- point is, is what are they waiting for? The moving of the water. And I've kind of alluded to that. We've read it, but why did they do that? Well, the very next phrase tells us, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up his readers. Why does this group of people come here? Why do they lay around all day? What's the purpose of them gathering here? What are they waiting for? So he, he describes what's going on. Now, I don't necessarily think he was agreeing with them that this was true. I just think he's explaining why they're there. He's setting the stage for Jesus's miracle. And you know, how tragic was this? Because you've got actual infirmed people, handicapped people who have, who have caught on to this mystical legend, just hoping that in some way it's true. I mean, how tragic is that? Somebody just having false hope. And we're going to see it's really tragic when we look at the specific instance that Jesus is going to enter into, because this is a man who's believed this for 38 years, who's lost all hope, who his only chance of getting into the water is somebody else lifting him in. He can't even, he can't even do it for himself. And he's probably just day after day, month after month, year after year, seeing somebody else get in before him. And you can just imagine what he's feeling after 38 years. It's just incredible. But a more probable explanation as you kind of look, you know, just in history and archaeology is there was probably a presence of some underground springs that actually came into that pool, maybe even some additional runoff rainwater, the way it was initially set up. And when water comes into a, a stale water source, it typically uh, moves it. I mean, not, not the Chattahoochee River for some reason. I don't know why that seems things very stale almost everywhere I've seen it. But most water sources, when you've got something coming in, it moves it. It, it moves it. It kind of disrupts it. So that probably uh, explains what's, what's going on there. It's also possible, and this probably contributed to the legend, that some of the water that was coming in may have had like a a mineral content, may have been warmed, 
And so it may have have provided some medicinal benefits or some relief to people that had joint pain or things of that nature, muscle problems, et cetera. We We don't really know. There were some things obviously that contributed to this legend. John is just describing that and he's really just describing why are these people there, right? He's setting the stage for us for what Jesus is gonna do. And then this was the big thing in the legend. Whoever stepped in first, after the water stirred, was made well of whatever disease he had. Can you imagine just being there in this crowd of people and everyone's eyes is on the water? And they're like, oh, did it just move? Oh, no, that was just a fly that landed on it. Oh, did it just move? No, I think somebody, you know, a kid lost their ball in the water, you know, or whatever. I mean, and, and the whole day is just spent laying there waiting for water to move so they could jump in there first. This is how... They live their life. And needless to say, we might say this, um, the healing favored the infirmed who were more mobile, right? That's the legend. I mean, if you can get in first, so it kind of favored the infirmed that were more mobile. If you, if you had a problem with your legs, the pool ain't going to work for you because you can't get in. If you're blind or you're deaf, maybe deaf would even be better because then you could see it and you could jump in without anyone else even noticing it. The people that couldn't walk, couldn't get in before you, you had a better chance. And so you see the impossibility, but not only did you need speed to get in, but you needed to be positioned well. So you can see how that works, right? I guarantee it wasn't kindergarten. Everyone was waiting their turn and staying in line, right? It's like trying to get on the plane in Africa. It's, it, lines don't exist. You know, it's like every man for themselves. you know? And, and that's the way when, when people feel like they're going to be left out or they might not get on, they'll, they'll fight and claw and scratch. So probably all this is going on at that pool. What's really, I think, fascinating about this, though, is when you look at Jesus here, it's amazing because he's in a multitude of people, as John described, and we're going to see that Jesus had the ability to heal everyone that day, but he only heals one one man. That's an interesting thought to consider because many people will say, well, Jesus's ministry on earth was to heal everybody. Well, here's an opportunity. Why didn't he do it? And I think we just have to that's a question we have to ask ourselves as we're studying the Bible. Is there a reason that Jesus didn't do it? Well, I can tell you one reason that he didn't do it. It's not because he didn't love them. That's not it. It's not because he didn't care about them. That's not it. I can guarantee that. That's not his character. I, I can guarantee it. It's not because he didn't have compassion on them because I guarantee he did. But God has got a purpose here. And God is going to make all things right one day. It just wasn't that day. Now, he made all things right for one man, but there's coming a day when he comes to reign, he's going to make it all right for all people. And that's the day that he's going to wipe away our tears of what the damage this sin sick world has caused each one of us. As we think about our loved ones who have experienced these kind of things. And and oftentimes, especially when it comes home, we're like, why didn't God do something about this? Well, there were hundreds of people this day that, that Jesus didn't do anything for. And I want to make an argument that there's a reason for it. I'm going to give you one reason later. I mean, this is a great, great discussion we can have sometime. But I want to give you one particular reason later in the message as to why I don't think he healed everybody. And, I, and there are reasons why he doesn't. Part of it is timing. Part of it is God's will. Part of it is God knows what's best for each one of us. There's lots of things. But I want to show you a very specific reason later on in the message. And so all of this that we've looked at so far simply sets the stage for the punchline, which we're now going to get into in verse 5, because 
This is John's handpicked sign. This is his third handpicked sign. This is John looking across a, a, a lifetime of experience with Jesus says, which ones am I going to pick that should convince people to trust in him alone? This is one of the ones he picked. And so we're going to see this in verse five. Let's read this because it's a very um, tragic story as, as, as we look at it. Verses five and six. Now a certain man, it says, was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Now, this word infirmity can mean weakness or sickness. That's kind of the generic meaning of the word. It can refer to a special form of bodily weakness or or sickness. We know that this man was in a debilitating state, if you will. We're going to learn more about him here um, in a second, but he either had an illness, a sickness, or disease. One commentator stated, I love the way he worded this, here's a man who lived in a prison without bars. That describes this man beautifully, in a prison without bars, 38 years besides this pool. He's never once made it in first. And from his perspective, as we're going to learn, he never even had a chance because what we learn about him in verse eight, and we're going to learn about this, his specific bodily weakness was he couldn't walk. Lots of things going against him for this type of healing. Can't get in the pool, can't get himself there, dependent on somebody else there, depending on somebody else to care as much about his healing as he cared about it. It's hard to find even in the medical industry today, isn't it? That's why we typically need an advocate in the room for someone who's sick because they're they're looking out for their best interests. And God bless our medical profession. They're so overworked and understaffed. And I know many of them are doing the best they can, but they just can't provide that type of individual attention that people need. And this man's no different. He needed someone right there by his side, position him well, keeping an eye on the water and be ready to lift him and, and quite frankly, probably throw him in the pool <laughs> and try to get him in there before anybody else. But he has been there for 38 years and this hasn't happened. I mean, think about where you were 38 years ago. Those of you in the room, so many of you weren't born. That's okay. That just expresses the length of time this man had been paralyzed. So we, it's a very tragic situation. Now, one of the things we, we, we don't know, we don't really want to speculate on, although there's three options here. Why was he paralyzed? Well, option number one, he was born that way. He was 38 years old. He's always been paralyzed. We don't, we don't know. Option number two, it, it, possibly he had an accident somewhere in his life that made him paralyzed. Option number three is kind of an interesting option. It could have been a result of divine discipline due to his sin. You know, sometimes the Lord in, in trying to get um, our attention when we're sinning and we're out of fellowship with him will introduce physical illnesses or things of this nature to get our attention. It's actually a very loving way. Not, he doesn't just take us out. It gives us an opportunity to respond. But he's trying to get our attention. Look down at verse 14. We won't cover that, but just it's interesting what Jesus says to him. See, if you, you have been made well, sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. So it's a very real possibility that he's paralyzed due to divine discipline. But again, we're not going to speculate. I think it's one of these three. We don't know what it, what it is. It's also possible that it's just a result of the sinful world we live in and, and his body did this to him. So again, we just, we just don't know. The, the thing is, is we know that it's been 38 years. Again, to put it in perspective, Jesus has only been alive on earth for 30 years at this point. This is eight years longer than Jesus has been on earth in a human body. That's how long this man has been paralyzed. Also, 
How many times do you think by the time Jesus is now in Jerusalem, how many times do you think he's been back and forth to Jerusalem in his lifetime? Well, Joseph, his father, was a godly man. My, my guess is that they went to the feast as, as prescribed in the Mosaic Law. So it multiplies lifetime by 30. I mean, I know he was in Egypt for a couple of years and hiding, et cetera, as a little boy. Um, but in terms of memorable trips to Jerusalem, 60 to 70 different trips. And, and, and just imagine the amount of times that, that Jesus may have even walked by this pool, walked by this man, seen him maybe begging. It, it, it's just amazing to think about that. I mean, you know, as Jesus is living his life on earth, waiting for the Father's time frame. I mean, if he was anything like us, and he's not, so maybe this is a bad speculation, but just imagine him as, as an 18-year-old just looking over and go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heal that man one day. How cool would that be if, if, he, if he had the knowledge at that time, right, the omniscience at that time? But do you imagine the amount of times that he's walked by him, hasn't been able to do anything for him, is heartbreaking to see what this man is struggling through? But you know what? Today's the day. That's what's awesome about the passage we're out there. Today's that guy's day, and Jesus is going to be able to step up and deliver. So it just kind of puts it in perspective. One of the things we've got to understand even further is the, the dilemma that handicapped people in this society faced. We, it's hard to imagine because we have grown up in an era of, of culture, which has actually been a great era, where we value the life of people, whether they're infirmed, whether they're handicapped, whether they're mentally retarded. We, we value life, at least uh, hopefully in the church. You know, I don't know if our culture does so much, but we, we've got a society that values life. And one of the things we've got to understand, I think it brings this even a more picture in terms of what Jesus did this day for this man, is we need to understand the incredibly difficult situation that any handicapped person faced in this first century culture. You know, there wasn't uh, an ADA, right? There wasn't uh, organizations fighting for handicapped or disabled rights. That, that didn't exist in this day. And so what we see is that many people in this day believe that handicapped people were completely worthless to society and they were an absolute drain on the social systems of the ancient world. Many of you have probably heard of Aristotle. Aristotle, uh, one of his prime students was Alexander the Great. We don't often make that connection. And it was Aristotle's teaching that convinced Alexander that the world needed to be Hellenized, needed to bring, be brought under a Greek way of life. And that was Alexander's whole point in conquering the world. He wanted to dominate the world with the Greek way of thinking, and probably the world in general. This is what he believed. He believed there should be a law to prevent rearing of deformed children. It's what he called deformed children, handicapped children. That if a children had any kind of handicapped or was, was infirmed in any way, Aristotle wanted a law to prevent parents who were even willing to raise them to not allow them to raise them. It gets work. The, the city of Sparta, the abandonment of deformed and sickly infants was a legal requirement. They actually followed through on Aristotle's desire. They made it illegal to raise a deformed or sickly child. The Romans who took over after the Greeks, they were just as bad. They treated children who had uh, disability with scorn, blind, deaf, mentally retarded children were publicly persecuted and many Roman parents would just throw that child into the Tiber River to drown. Some parents, this is gonna sound good until the punchline, some parents let their handicapped children live and were like, oh, that's so nice. 
but then they would often mutilate them to make them more effective beggars for the family. And then you've got other children uh, who had disabilities and parents would just tie their legs and their feet and throw them out in the woods and leave them to die. This was the perspective on handicapped people. This is an element of the population that somebody would look at the Messiah and say, why do you care about them? (laughs) They're not gonna help you establish a kingdom. They're not gonna help you overthrow the Romans. They are worthless, pointless. Don't spend your time on them. And we don't have it recorded in the text, but you know, sometimes the disciples weren't always on the same page with Jesus. And you can almost see, uh, Jesus, let's not go in there. Come on, let's just, let's just go around here. Jesus has got an appointment in here this morning or this day. And so we're going to see him as he go forward. But some people with disabilities, uh, again, were able to survive by relying on the kindness of relatives or strangers, handouts of food, shelter, but most were not so fortunate. And so the best case scenario was a very low quality of life. Worst case scenario was death and and just abandonment by the culture. And, you know, that's why I think I make the argument, Jesus Christ should be your hero because he ain't like that. He's never been like that. He didn't need the ADA to tell him not to think that way. Like he's always valued people in life. And I think seeing what sin caused breaks his heart, you know, and I, I just think it's awesome to just sit there and soak for a second that the God of the Bible doesn't feel this way about handicapped people at all. In fact, he, I think his heart goes out to them because these, these are outcomes of what he tried to warn Adam and Eve about back in the garden. And now this is in full display, all of these outcomes and negative effects of sin on his creation. And I think he is longing for the days. He's longing for the day, and yet he's patient to give as many people a chance to respond as possible, but he's longing for a day where he makes all this right. When the Lord of all creation wipes away our tears because there's no more sickness, there's no more death, there's no more sorrow. And I think he's looking forward to that day. And I think he's done everything possible to make that day a reality, and we're just awaiting the day where he does it. And so it's really encouraging as you see the heart of God through the person of Jesus Christ here, because it says that he saw him lying there and he knew. And it was interesting, this word knew in the Greek, there's multiple words for know in the Greek. This one is gnosko. It has the idea of coming to know or gaining or receiving knowledge. It means that you, it's a process of gaining knowledge is, is kind of how this word is used. And so that can mean one of the following three things. It could mean that Jesus, just through his observation, He just perceived the situation. Maybe he had observed this man over the years. Maybe he had understood. And and I think uh, option number two is that he may have actually been told the specifics of his situation. So he kind of came into that knowledge of the man. That's all a very real, natural, possible way that he came into the knowledge. But considering Jesus is Jesus, it's also possible he could have utilized his omniscience. You know, we learned from Philippians 2 and not to get into that deep uh, can of worms this morning, but you know, when, when he took upon himself flesh, he, he laid aside the voluntary use of his divine attributes while he was on earth. And this is why when he utilized his attributes like omniscience, the, the stated understanding for that is that God the Father allowed that in that minute because he lived his life in dependence on God the Father. Jesus Christ lived his life on earth the same way we're designed to live on our life on earth by moment by moment dependence on somebody else's resources. And that's what Jesus did. So it is possible in this moment that he utilized his omniscience to understand everything about this man. Or it's possible that he came into this knowledge over time or through 
the testimony of someone else, just like we would have done. And so based on this knowledge, Jesus is going to ask this man a question. It seems like a silly question, right, to us. We're just like, why would he even ask this? Uh, Do you want to be made well? That's like, well, of course he wants to be made well. I mean, that's, that's how we think. But you know that there are people that don't. You know, it's, it's not something to take for granted. There are people that, when asked this, would, would be perfectly content to remain in their miserable condition for whatever reason. Maybe it's a personality defect. They just like the attention. I, I don't know. I, maybe they're scared if they got use of whatever part they aren't able to use, that there'd be too much pressure on them now to perform. They kind of like being in the background. And I always thought it was easy, uh, interesting, when I tore my Achilles a few years ago, uh, we had already had a family trip planned to to Tennessee, and so um, I borrowed a wheelchair for someone, and so my kids were rolling me around in a wheelchair, I was like, some of them, some of them I didn't want to let push me around, because there were streets and roads I was a little worried about, but anyways... They're pushing me around in the wheelchair, so we're going through all these museums and little things in Branson, uh, not Branson, Gatlinburg. Anyways, two places you can lose a lot of money. I just couldn't remember which one we were at, but Gatlinburg, and we're going through museums, and it was the the strangest thing. It was the first time in my life that I had been in a wheelchair in public, and you know that after about two or three museums, I came home uh, to carry at night. I said, you know what's so odd about being in this wheelchair? What's, what's really stuck out to me since I've been in this wheelchair? Nobody makes eye contact with me. No one. No person in those museums even acknowledged that I existed. It was interesting. You know, cause I'm, I'm just kind of rolling around. I'm trying to you know, just wave to people, say hello. That's just kind of how I am. But I, so no one would even look at me. It was so, it was so um, fascinating. Maybe some people don't want to be healed because they like to be obscure. They don't want to be noticed. You know, lots of reasons. So he asks them, do you want to be healed? In fact, he says this, uh, he uses this phrase, do you want? It means to will, to wish, to desire. It, it implies active volition. Like, do you, do you really want this? It's kind of the idea. And it's used in the perfect or, or the present tense. The implication is right now, right now, do you want to be healed? That's the thrust of the question you're going to notice uh, that the man's answer basically is, yes, I want to be healthy. But notice that in his response, we're going to look at it here in a second, he misses this right now aspect of it. He's like, of course, generically, I want to be healed. Of course, I, I want to be healed. But here's my problem. The problem he had is he thought his only chance for being healed would be when the water moves, someone can get him in the water. So he's looking out in the future. I'm, I'm hoping one day I can be healed is kind of the idea. That wasn't Jesus's question at all. Do you want to be healed right now? That was the question. And that's what he misses out on. So he tries to explain this to Jesus. I think he thinks, you know, Jesus must not understand this. Maybe he's new to town. I'm going to have to explain to him what's going on at this pool, right? So again, another reason why John explains kind of the common thought of this pool. And so in verse seven, we read, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Again, I know we keep trying to do this, but just put, your man, put yourself in this man's shoes for just a second. He's paralyzed. He can't use his legs, right? He has heard about this healing power in the pool. Medical help has not been able to help him. No doctors have been able to help him. He hears about this pool. He says, oh, finally I have hope. Someone just get me to the pool and I'll try to work my way in and beat everybody else in. He gets his hope up. He's probably thinking, it won't be long now. I'm going to be walking in these legs. I'm just going to watch that water move. And then someone beats him into the pool. He's like, okay, I'll try, I'll try it again tomorrow. 
Someone beats him in the pool. Okay, I'll try it again next week. Someone beats him in the pool. And you start stacking days on top of days and weeks on top of weeks and months on top of months and years on top of years until we get 38 years out. And you can imagine how frustrated this man is and how it's really easy in that situation to lose hope. I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, if God doesn't answer our prayer like within three hours of praying it, we're like, oh Lord, what are you doing to me? We like, we're just on this timetable where God's got to come in and deliver immediately or we start impugning the character of God. He must not, and we still don't have an answer. Oh man, he's just leaving me in the lurch. This man had 38 years. And just, just put that in your perspective as he's answering this question. And it's almost as if he un- misunderstands. There's a, like, I mean, a slight possibility he misunderstands Jesus' question. He seemed to think that Jesus was implying he didn't want to be healed since he had not gotten into the pool by now. You know, I, again, from his perspective, he's like, of course I want to get healed. That my problem is I can't get in the pool. You know, that, that's what he's, he's thinking. So he may have even understood it that way. And so he just simply informed Jesus it wasn't due to his lack of desire. It was due to his lack of ability. He just says, when I'm coming... I'm trying to get in there. And can you imagine a man who can't walk struggling with all his might to get into the pool and beat somebody in? I mean, it must have been just a very pitiful thing to see. I mean, your heart would probably break seeing somebody trying to just crawl in uh, and get healed. And I love what he says here because implied in his answer is kind of a subtle request. He doesn't actually make a request. But what's what's implied? Maybe you could help me into the pool. (laughs) Maybe you could stick around and help me into the pool. And, you know, what's so awesome is, is what he had kind of missed out on is uh, the man didn't know who he was talking to. He just didn't know who he was talking to. He, he's like, well, maybe Jesus can help me in the pool. No, no, Jesus can heal you. Maybe Jesus can help me. But no, no, Jesus created the water, the very water that is stirred. No, 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 I, you don't understand. I got to get to the pool because the angel, Jesus created the angels, right? That's who you're talking to, my man. You don't need the water. You need him. You need Jesus Christ. And it's so interesting because, I mean, insert your application here, <laughs> really, honestly, for each one of us, because how often do we think we need Jesus to get us somewhere or to give us something or to provide something when all we need is Jesus himself? How many times does that creep in our mind? If Jesus could just do this, if Jesus could just do that for me, if Jesus could just get me here, if Jesus could just get me... And it's like, and I think the same lesson that he is about to learn is the same lesson we need to learn in our daily life. Oftentimes, many times, most of the time, I could even say, what you need is Jesus. Because Jesus can see you through anything, right? Anywhere you're at, he's the one who made it all. He's the one who loved you so much he died for your sins. He took the penalty so that you wouldn't have to take the penalty. He's a real hero, This man is a real hero that we can trust, not only for eternal life, but for abundant life. As we go about life, this world stinks, this world's breaking down, this world is falling apart. Our bodies stink sometimes. They are falling apart. They're breaking down. Relationships are breaking down. People are are going nuts in our society. And yet here's Jesus saying, you know what? Just take my hand. What you need right now is me. And so this man's going to realize this. He's about to find out because Jesus is going to give him some instructions. I love it. He goes to explain why he hasn't been healed. He can't get into the water. Jesus doesn't even take time to correct him. He just moves right into the healing. I love it. I love it. He just gets right to the point. 
He says this, rise, take up your bed and walk. Verses eight through nine, Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. Now, Jesus issues three commands here, all with the thrust of right now do these things. Not wait to get in the water. Not, hey, let's move you closer so you can roll in quicker, right? This is how practically many people would think, well, let's just get you. You're too far from the edge. We've got to fight your way up. We've got to get you right there. In fact, just go lay in the pool, right? And then when it moves, you're already in there. You're the first one, right? When we come up with all these, like, just secular ways of figuring this out, Jesus doesn't do that at all. He's like, if you want to be healed, you need me. And let me tell you what you need to do. Number one, he says, rise. It means, the word literally means rise from sleep, rise from a posture of sleep. In other words, stop laying down and get up. By the way, uh, it's kind of an interesting question. When was this man healed? If Jesus tells him to rise and he can't, that's a pretty cruel thing to do to a paralyzed person. This man was healed. (laughs) This man was healed before Jesus gave him instructions. This man was healed. He said, rise, and, and, he, and he rose. And then he said, take up your bed. It means to lift it up to carry. This was probably just a roll mat. He wasn't carrying a big mattress by himself. But carry it away. Remove it. Take it away. And by the way, this is going to be the command. This, this command out of three, this is what's going to get this man in trouble. This is what's going to get Jesus in trouble. We're going to explore that as we go further in John chapter 5. And the reason for that is this is what they considered working on the Sabbath. You can kind of see that as we go uh, verse, into verse 9. It says, that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. They, they considered that working. They didn't even take into account the miracle. We'll talk about that here in a second. And finally, he tells them to walk. Uh, the word means to, to tread or to walk about, walk around, right? It's got a preposition on it, walk around. Utilize your feet and your legs for the first time in 38 years. He made well, took up his bed and walked. And that word walked is in the imperfect tense. He kept on walking. Wouldn't you do the same? <laughs> if you've never walked in 38 years, I'd be like, man, I'm, I'm testing out the wheels, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm walking around, I'm moving. This is exactly what he did. It reminds me, Actually, I I, I said I would answer this or at least give another reason. It reminds me of why Jesus didn't heal everybody all at the same time. Because, you know, roughly two years or so from this man being healed in John 5, we have another instance of a man being healed in in, in much a, a similar fashion, a man who could not walk. And what's really fascinating about that is this man was healed when he was begging out. Even on this day that he healed The man that we're looking at in John 5, two years later, this man awaits his day of healing, this time at the hand of Peter. Acts 3, verses 6 through 8. This is a fun one, right? Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Same wording used there. He took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And then notice that phrase, immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And I like this guy. I mean, I like the guy in John 5, but I really like this guy too because look at, his, look at his heart here. So he he didn't just walk. He leaped up. He stood. He walked. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And there's a song, right? I, th- I think there's a song like that. But I love this. And you know what you're going to see here that's the same in Acts 3, that's also the same in John 5. And by the way, why do we think Jesus 
allowed this man in Acts 3 to wait another two years? Why didn't he just heal him when he was on earth? And I think it has a lot to do with the first century apostles. This was going to be a miracle that would validate them just as much as the miracles of Jesus validated him. It was going to validate their message just as much as the miracles of Jesus validated and were designed to validate his message. So there were certain men and women alive at that time that were saved for these moments to bring God glory and to validate what he was doing on earth. But what's really cool about Acts 3 and what's really cool about John 5 is you see the immediacy of this healing. And the healing itself is miraculous, but let's talk about another miracle that happens with these miraculous healings. And so notice again that the healing here in John 5 was immediate, just like the one a couple years later will be in Acts 3. Uh, The word literally means instantly or straight away. Now, here's the, the secondary miracle, in my opinion, with all of these healings. Do you know that when muscles aren't used for a length of time, and we know this, muscles do what? They wither. They atrophy. Often they need many months of physical therapy to be able to be used again. This whole thing was immediate. You know, I tore my Achilles, I don't know, four years ago. My, my calves are still different sizes. I mean, it's just like my muscle on that side has totally atrophied. This is what naturally happens. And so not only does Jesus provide immediate healings, this is what's so incredible, but in these cases, he provided immediate strength. He circumvented the entire healing process and brought it all up to bear in one moment. That's even more amazing. The healings themselves are amazing, but he circumvented this natural process of strengthening, of therapy that you know she was in bed. He heals her, and what does she get up and do? Does she go back to sleep? Oh, I want you, you know, mother-in-law, I want you rest for three or four days. No, it says she immediately got up and served them. Again, strength immediate strength with the immediate healing, just, just an incredible thing. And so this man did exactly what Jesus said without delay. I mentioned this earlier, the word walk is in perfect tense, meaning he continually walked around. Now, as we go forward in the story, and we're going to kind of stop here this morning, but as we go forward in the story, there is a tragic thing that happened this day. And we're going to see this bear out over the next few weeks because it really feeds to the overall narrative of what we learned all the way back in John 1. John 1, 11 says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And what's really tragic about this is Isaiah the prophet had predicted when the Messiah came, he was gonna be doing things, recognizable things that should kind of cause him to stand out and, and validate who he was. One of the things he was gonna do was heal the lame. And here we have in John 5 in Jerusalem, for all eyes to see, the Messiah had appeared. This man who had been sick and infirmed and crippled had been bound for 38 years. In fact, let's read Isaiah 35, this this section. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. And by the way, this is everything Jesus was doing on earth over and over and over again to validate his identity and his message. And so the people should have been jumping for joy when they saw this miracle. The religious leaders should have been jumping for joy. Allegedly, this is the one they were looking for. This is the one they were devoting their life to study about. And they weren't excited about him. In fact, we're going to see that when Jesus heals this man, when he instructed him to take his mat up on the Sabbath, we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, the religious leaders are actually mad at him. They're convinced that he is a sinner of epic proportions, that what he did, 
that day was wrong. And so we're going to next week look at this dialogue that comes out of this healing and begin to work our way through that. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word this morning. Just what a great opportunity to consider the Lord Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he's capable of, uh, his character and his love. And so we're just grateful to see that. And Lord, we're so grateful again, as always, and every opportunity we get just to remind ourselves of the value of what this man accomplished for us on the cross by dying for our sins and rising again. And so we're just so grateful for him. We pray that he would get um, all the glory and honor this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.